Iorio here with my co-host Elena Henry, and thank you for tuning in to the first episode of Backbeat Conversations. This is the podcast for York Music Group, a student-run organization at York College. We do everything music-related. We have our own record label called York Volume. Think of us as, you know, the college equivalent of Universal Music Group. Here on this podcast, we work on connecting the different facets of the music industry. And also, please bear with us on audio quality as, you know, we're all in quarantine like everybody else is, and we're not in our lovely studio, so we're doing our best. But in any case, our guest today is Rudy Sarzo. Great. So, Mr. Sarzo, can you tell us about your job and your life? You know what? I never think of what I do as a musician, a job, because we play and there's so much personal satisfaction and rewards from making music. You know, it's 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 what I do. It's like getting paid for breathing, <laughs> which would be great if, if that could happen. <laughs> yeah. So what drew you to playing bass? Bass? Uh, you know, I like to think of the instrument chooses us. But also, I have to add to that, that when I was young and I was playing guitar very poorly, but still, you know, I wanted to, I was a kid starting out and I wanted to join the neighborhood band. And once I moved to that neighborhood, they had too many guitar players in the band. So they told me, if you want to join the band, you got to play bass. <laughs> so I did what I was told. And I've been, I've been doing what I'm told to do ever since <laughs> because it works. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's excellent. So, uh, was that band, was that first band a metal band? Or did you just kind of end up playing metal? Oh, no. I was playing bass before metal existed. (laughs) Uh, I am that old. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of like, I grew up basically with a history of rock and roll, according to the books. By that, I mean when you read books about the 50s rock and roll, which is when it started, because it wasn't even called rock and roll then. You know, it was called swing or dance music, and then it just became rock and roll once it went from, like, orchestras playing dance music to small, you know, bands, combos. Because right. it was cheaper to hire three or four guys than it was to hire a whole traveling orchestra. And now it's the same principle when people hire DJs. Is It's cheaper to hire one guy with a laptop than it is a whole band. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I've been around since those days, you know. <laughs> So there was no metal. It, it just get, kept getting louder. You know, what was considered metal back in 1980, 81, or even before that. To me, the first metal artist I ever heard was Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix. He took rock and blues and just took it to a whole different dimension with his approach and the sound and everything he was able to get out of the guitar. And I think everybody pretty much is influenced by that ever since. I was just a kid when Hendrix and Led Zeppelin and The Who and every, you know, all the founding member, founding fathers of what the whole metal consciousness, you know, are. And then after that, of course, Black Sabbath, who some people claim they are the fathers of metal. But yeah, in a true metal direction, because they really redefine the path of metal musically should be i am blessed to have actually played with one of the members uh, actually two i played with two black sabbath members the first one was ozzy osbourne right. and then the second one ronnie james dio i was ronnie's last bass player in dio i was in the band until he passed away in 2010. Mm. so how did you get your first serious gig that's a good question. I was in my first rock band, really rock band. I want to say rock band is because it was original material, was quite a riot. 
I had yes, I played rock and roll before that, of course, but it was always like in bar bands, copy bands, you know, doing doing all the people's music. Right. But it wasn't until I started playing with Quiet Riot that you know the goal of the band was to get a record deal. There was a Japanese record deal, but the band was never with Randy Rhodes. Version was never signed to an American, and by then, then you get an international deal out of that. Usually, if you're signed to in the U.S., especially back in the day, it was pretty much that they own all the other territories. Especially if you're signed to a major label like, let's say, Columbia Records, which became Sony. You right. know, they would take your record and and distribute it all over the world. You know. But with a Japanese record, then it's just a Japan-only territory. Hmm. And how I got the gig was because I was playing with Randy Rose in Quiet Riot, and then when he joined Ozzy, and after the band recorded two records, Blizzard of Oz and Diary of the Madman, they changed the rhythm section, and then they were looking for a bass player. And Randy, because I, I he trusted me, you know, from mm-hmm. playing with him in previous bands and knowing me personally. Of all the people that he could recommend in Los Angeles, I was, you know, the best candidate for that. And that's how I got to play with Ozzy. Wow. it's amazing. Yeah. So that's one of those yeah, cases. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that, that you can learn from that, or anybody that I like to always like to share with a younger musician, is to build your your trust factor. Have people trust you. You know, work with them, even if it's as, as an intern or for free, just or at a at a lower price, just to get in there and get the people know that how valuable you're going to be to the band or even a record company or a management production any of the facets of of the music industry always build your reputation because that's what's going to make people call you back yeah for sure yeah reliability is a huge factor in this industry yeah yes so um speaking of the industry here at backbeat conversations we're always trying to connect different facets of the industry so having been a live musician for so long you've worked with a lot of audio engineers what do you look yes. for in an audio engineer that's you know that's really an interesting question because huh. there's different you know there's I, i've worked with uh, audio engineers let's say uh, i've had this conversation with let's say mike clink and you would know him as the engineer and producer for guns and roses Okay. And I got to work with him in Whitesnake. He did the Slip of the Tongue record, and of course he did at least the first two or three Guns N' Roses records. And it's different approaches. I think when you're working with an engineer, unless the engineer is also the producer, you are basically trying to capture not only the vision of the band, but the vision and the sound that the producer might have in mind. So right. you're going to be translating a lot and I love to study the history of rock and roll and when you get to read books by somebody like Jeff Emmerich who was the engineer for the Beatles you know later on I think I believe from Revolver the album Revolver on and he had a certain mindset about progressing and working with the sounds of the Beatles like the Beatles were approached him and say listen we, we want to get a certain sound like whether it be John Lennon wanted to sound like a, some some uh, Tibetan monk chanting from a mountain, you know, or 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 phasing or Leslie the guitar through it Leslie, you know, those were things that were not done back then. And there seems to be so many options now because there's so many so much technology to plug-ins, 
you know, if you're recording with Pro Tools or any of the, you know, that audio software. And uh, there's so many options that I think now the job of the engineer is to actually focus because there's so many options that if you don't really reel it in and bring in certain spices into the mix, it's not going to be tasteful. You know, the sound is, is going to be all over the place, you know. So I think that the job of the engineer today is even more important in filtering everything else that is not needed from the tracks so you think the engineer should be in charge of like paring down ideas oh you're kidding being in charge of i've been in a situation that actually the person that is in charge is the executive producer of the record a lot of the times that happens to be the artist relation person on the album because you know they are the ones who are responsible for the success of the, of the record i work with uh with artist relations at geffen such as john coladner being clever responsible for the success of white snake aerosmith and a bunch of other rock bands you know especially during his atlantic years you know working with foreigner and so on these people might not be musicians but they have ears they're like the the super fan the super fan that knows what a band should sound like you know but they just happen to be you know that powerful to be able to to go to the artist and say hey listen you're not focusing on who you really are as a band you know right so it's some sometimes it all depends on the role of the engineer. I've worked in situations where the, we, we, the band produces themselves. So we rely on the engineer to be able to capture what we sound like and then being able to, to make that into a record. Because most of the times a band on a record does not sound exactly like they do live. Sometimes that is mandatory. Sometimes you must. Sometimes you want to be a little bit more whimsical with your sound. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. What you're saying is like rock and roll takes a village. It's not just the musicians. It's the producers and the managers and the engineers. They all have to be cohesive and they all have to work together. And the audience. And the the audience. You know, one of the things that we we had to uh, consider every time we went in the studio as a whole, the band, the label and everybody at the label, everybody at the band, management, producer, and everything, is where do you fit? And I'm talking about situations that dates, predate streaming. Where do you fit into the playlist? And usually this happens after you had a successful record. Because once you have a successful record, now you're expected to repeat the success. So it's even more focused than the first time around. First time around, you know, by that I mean on your first album. Your first album is basically a collection of the best songs you've written all your life, basically. Yeah. Because it's your first record. Nobody has heard it. Nobody has heard the music. And you sit there with an artist relation person from the label. You sit there with the producer and they go through your catalog and they go, okay, uh, let's say hypothetically, 10 songs. And they say, okay, we need 10 songs and these are the ones and we're gonna you know we're gonna need uh three four singles hopefully and and the rest could be album tracks and they know how to break a band but they might break it you know by taking an album track first if that album track is so unique is your sound 
unique or do you sound just like everybody else? Of course, you're going to have to have certain elements about who you are as an artist that, are, that make you unique and easily identifiable by that first album or that first hit that you have. And I'm talking about the way it was back then because everything is based on individual playlists nowadays. Or you might go to YouTube to check out new artists, or you might go to Spotify, you might check all the people's playlists. But back in the day when, when there was only radio, this is pre-streaming, it was all considered by work closely with marketing and promotions individual from the label. Can I take the song to radio? Can I have it get it played? Because it suits and it fits into a certain format. Years ago, when I was growing up, you know, when I was a teenager, I'm 69 now, so, you know, we're talking about the 60s, we got anything from Johnny Cash to Jimi Hendrix to Janis Joplin to Santana on the same station, one song after the other. That all changed with FM. FM became more deeper cuts, album-oriented. Then when MTV exploded, forget about it, it was all about the visuals. If you were an MTV star, you were guaranteed you were going to get on the radio. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't think I'd ever thought about that before. Yeah, but of course, you know, the best reference you can get is what's going on right now. Right now, it's a whole different system. The outcome is the same. It's the same exact outcome. You want to reach as many people as possible. Back in the day, you know, I'm talking about 50 years ago, starting, you know, like in the 60s, you had different outlets to actually get the true experience of the artist. This is in addition to touring, of course, but the best promotion you could get back in the 60s, it was either to appear on the Ed Sullivan Show, just like Elvis and the Beatles and Stones and everybody else did back then. In addition, there were other teen-oriented TV shows. Those were uh, Hullabaloo, Shindig, and so on. Local markets had their own. There's also where the action is. I mean, this is all available on YouTube, so you can actually see what the production values were. Fast forward 50 years. Fast forward the same thing. YouTube is your best option to promote the band. They hear the music, and they see what it's all about. And rock and roll is a visual art, in addition to being an audio art, oral art. It's very important that you're able to embrace all of them visual and audio yeah because visual is much more a part of the music industry i think now than it ever was well i think mtv started that mtv which was the uh, de facto that's where videos were made for and and i was there at the beginning and i was there at the end at the end (laughs) i mean at the end because there was a time where it transitioned from playing music to reality shows such as Jersey Shore and, and, and now they got game shows and stuff like that. Right. When I started out with MTV, it was purely music. Not only was it purely music, we had a song called Come and Feel the Noise. And since they didn't have enough content on MTV to play videos 24 hours without repeating, hmm. back in 1983, they would play Come and Feel the Noise. MTV would play it every half hour. Wow. About a promotion tour. Yeah. <laughs> Which also helped our record, Metal Health, to become the first debut by a metal band to reach number one on the Billboard charts. We were the first ones. And we were selling a million copies a week 
at that time, our competition was Thriller, the Michael Jackson Thriller, the biggest record in history, and right. Synchronicity. Synchronicity by the police, another huge record. Yeah, for sure. Wow, that was that was actually mind blowing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but what's most important is what's happening now. You know, of course, you know it's it's good to know history, so you see how things evolve from different stages of the music industry. But right now, the most important thing to focus is how do you deal with promoting a band nowadays, and and ultimately, you know, there's different streams of monetary streams, you know. One of them is, of course, Spotify. Then you got YouTube. You have Sound Exchange. Are you guys familiar with Sound Exchange? Yeah. We have that, and you know, and when you tour, you know, you're merchandising whatever revenues you make from playing live, and and so on. And the fact that most bands own the live to their music, to their record, something that we didn't have when we signed a record deal with Quiet Riot. You know, it basically the standing record deal was imagine a mortgage payment on your house that after you finish paying for your house you still do not own your house wow or on your car you know like you make payments right. on your car and at the point you own it that's it and, and and you own your car you can do whatever you want with it no the record deal is the standard deal at the time in the industry was that you will get an advance to make the record you did not make money on any royalties until the advance was completely paid for. And in addition to that, you had to pay for the making of your video also. It's standard. This is a standard fare. And then after, if you got if you got to the point where you paid off your advance, you still did not own the master. The record company will own the masters in perpetuity. Right. Yeah, that's the way it was. You know, nowadays, you don't have to take that option you're not for do that you can go the independent route yeah that's i think a result of a lot of technology made available to regular people mm -hmm. to make albums yes. yes and you know what i think it's a great thing unfortunately there's a downside to that and the downside to it is that all of a sudden you are on your own not only financially to pay for the making of the record or if you buy the tools or have access to the tools such as a recording studio uh, some sort of like Pro Tools rig or whatever or you want to make it in your bedroom that's fine what you're missing is the ex working with producers engineers and record company artist relations individuals who have the experience to get the best out of the, the artists for every Beatles there's a George Martin that polished their mm -hmm. music and made it sound a certain way. Every single band has somebody behind them that has helped them to get to a certain degree. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Because I know that like bedroom pop is like a whole genre now, but a lot of yeah, those people is. are missing out on the opportunity to have a producer tell them like, hey, this isn't really working. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know what? And to be honest with you, you know, anybody that has success, you cannot deny that they're actually touching emotionally and reaching out to a certain, to, to masses, to a massive audience, because yeah. you cannot have success without massive approval mm -hmm. or, or appeal, you know. But having said that, and I'm going to mention this because I have not heard any commentary based on this, but I'm going to give you mine. I watched Billy Eilish on the Oscars. 
singing yeah. yesterday. Yesterday, as a song, it's an incredibly melodic tune. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of melody, you know, a lot of different passages and runs. It's, it's I would call it sophisticated writing. You know, something that was standard back in the 50s and 60s and so on. Today's songwriting, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, it's more limited in structure and harmony. Yeah. Most of the hits today are based on three, maybe four notes, melodies. And I got to tell you, that is a very tough thing to accomplish, to create a hit song with minimal melody and structure that is incredible that is incredible to be to be able to do that having said that any artist that hones in on just creating that type of music is not going to have the same musical depth of harmonic or harmony and theory as somebody who writes or sings melodies and songs like paul mccartney yeah yeah i would agree with that yeah you know what I would have loved to have heard is her own rendition of yesterday. Not trying mm. to sing it and perform it like the original because it doesn't, I don't think that's her style, you know? But I would have loved to take, see how she actually takes, most important, the lyrics of the song and actually arranges it that to a form that she excels in. Mm. Yeah, because I would say, having listened to Billie Eilish music before, that Yesterday by the Beatles is definitely not her go-to no, style of no, music. But, yeah, it's yeah, definitely not. Again, yeah, but then again, I would be really, I would love to hear her own version. Not a McCartney version, but her own version of the song. Right. Minimize, you can take all of those notes and actually get away from, from singing so melodically to singing something more in her style of like three or four notes. Mm-hmm within the song and that would have been to me a fresh modern take on the tune and that's actually a good point in general for covers nowadays at least i've noticed a lot of people just do a carbon copy and they don't make their own new flavor of the song i guess you could say yes 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 because what is melody if it's uh for example, lyric is the message of the song. It's the message. The message can remain the same. You you know, you can virtually take any song that has a melody and rap it. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. You can take yesterday and rap it. <laughs> really. Think about it. It doesn't, it doesn't even have to have a melody. You could. It's and just to funny me, to think about. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, find the beat. And, I mean, of course, we're having a conversation. I don't want to start all of a sudden thinking about the song. But if you find the rhythm of the poetry of the song, that's where the uh, the beat lies of that lyric. Yeah. And it's in there. So something we do on every podcast is we ask someone, what was their shut up and let me do it moment? And we ask that because in this industry, you know, there's often a moment of unexpected validation when you realize how much you've grown and here on backbeat conversations we call that our shut up and let me do it moment so could you tell us about a moment that you may have had like that Ooh, that is you know that is one of the greatest questions i've been asked and maybe it's because i i don't even know 
how to wrap your head around around the question itself. Shut up and do it. I think okay, if you talk to people who have some level of success, I think well look at it. Okay, and I'm talking from a scientific point of view. You, all of us, at some point we were sperms, right? Beat. We beat all the other millions of sperms to get in, right? Right, yeah. And, and here we are, right? So it is in our nature. I think that shut up and do it moment is that moment right before I entered the egg. And so is everybody else's. You know what? That's so accurate. <laughs> That's the best answer we've had to date. Yeah. There you go. So, be a sperm. <laughs> yes. I'm so glad you said that. That's excellent. I love it. <laughs> the, the reason why we're here is because we were victorious in, in some sort of competition with millions. You know, it, it's, a, it's in our nature. You know, we, we're survivalists as a species, as a planet, as, a, as humanity. You know, and it, it's in our DNA and mostly adapt we are just look at the dinosaur <laughs> yeah we are a species of survivalists <laughs> yeah so uh, speaking of species we were stalking yeah. your Facebook a little bit and we noticed that you really have a thing for rescue dogs yes, we, yes I do well you know all animals you know that need sheltering and you know somebody to speak for them it's uh what i do is very simple i reshare all the available rescues that come through my timeline on social media and i create awareness it's it's the least i can do and to me it's like breathing i wouldn't even think about it i just do it because my consciousness would not let me do otherwise Right. I cannot ignore it. My consciousness will not allow me to ignore it. I couldn't take a step forward, you know. Oh, of course, yeah, that's really amazing. Yeah. So do you have dogs? Yes, I have a Yorkie. And uh, she's our fourth Yorkie in our family with my, oh. my wife and mine. And um, we've been married for over 35 years now. And she's our fourth, and she just takes over the house and our heart. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. Oh, so uh, you talked about your we talked about your radio show a little earlier when we weren't recording. But how did the Six Degrees of Sarzo come to be? Well, I started out as a podcast. It was called the uh, the Dash Podcast, and I was just basically interviewing people close to me. You know, my friends, my neighbors. I I, I happen to live in a very creative neighborhood, so I had uh, access to a lot of people. Uh, of wow. all walks of life, now you know, in the entertainment industry, mm-hmm. and um, the CEO of Monsters of Rock, they do the festivals and the cruises, and now a radio station, Monsters of Rock Radio. He asked me to do a show for his uh, radio station, and uh, it's on the Dash Network, which is a non-pay subscription. It's free uh, network called Dash, and there's about over 80 stations and you get it for free and my show it's not a podcast it's an actual uh, radio broadcast mm-hmm. um it's on sundays at 4 p.m 
Pacific Standard Time, and it's for four hours, and uh, we play music and conversation. And our guest today, Sunday, is going to be uh, a band called No Small Children. And in the daytime, they're teachers, music teachers, in, at a school in California, Los Angeles. And when they're not teaching, they are rocking. This, they have a punk band called No Small Children. And it's a, it's a great interview, you know, so you can see that it's all possible. You can fulfill your dreams and you can help others by teaching to fulfill their dreams. Definitely. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, music yeah. teachers are powerful. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, of course they are. I still remember most of my teachers, you know. That was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> But if they just leave an indelible, you know, mark in your consciousness. As a matter of fact, uh, I uh, I just been inducted into the Hall of Fame of my college, uh, Miami Dade, and in April I'm going to be receiving the award, and I can't wait to thank all the teachers that were responsible for preparing me. Yeah, you know, I was part of, of the. Uh, I had a minor in music and a major in, in mass communication. Uh, radio, television, motion picture, producing and directing it. And I got to tell you, everything that I learned in, in the school, even today, I still use it. And that was like over over 50 years ago, you know, and it's still relatable. Even though the technology changes, the, the principles of what you study remain the same, the fundamentals, you know, in communicating with humanity and the masses, you know. So I can't wait to really, really thank them because they, they really deserve it. Part of my success is due to them teaching me. That's amazing that you get to go back and, and thank them all. Yeah, absolutely. Not a lot of people get that opportunity. I know, I yeah. know. Well, yeah. we're just about ready to wrap up here. Is there anything else you would like to tell our listeners? Um, what's your demographic? Because I want to be more specific. Mostly young college students wanting to break into the industry, I'd say. Yeah, you know what? Okay, we're talking about industry. And of course there's an industry. And I did not realize there was an industry until until I sat down at business manager's office when the band Quiet Riot went from us being starving musicians to actually having a number one album that, wow, there is an industry, and now we become a corporation. <laughs> and, and my attitude at the moment, at that moment, that I had to like become like the secretary of the corporation was like, wait a minute, I didn't get into music for this. I just want to play, you know? And what, what I walk away out of that experience is that it is both. It is art and it's industry. Nowadays, more than ever before, you have to educate yourself. You gotta, everything that the school is, is teaching you, take that in because you're gonna be carrying that with you for the rest of your life. And at some point you're gonna put it to use and what you learn in school is gonna be what is gonna help you to succeed, to have that tool, to use that tool that you learn in school, to be able to succeed just like, I mean, I've done so many things that I was able to do and I always use that as a reference, my education, at Miami-Dade College, you know, I wrote a book called Off the Rails. The only way that I could actually approach the book is from what I learned during creative writing classes. I say, okay, well, you know, when I sat down to write, I was like, oh my God, what, what am I going to do? And I say, okay, wait, wait, wait a minute. 
I study creative writing. Oh, okay, let me go back to the fundamentals of, of storytelling. And right. that's, how, that's how I wrote the book. If I hadn't had that background and learned how to do that in college, forget about it. I would have not been able to write the book from my own voice, not using a ghostwriter. No, it's me. <laughs> what you read in the in the book off the rails uh, available on Amazon if you're interested it's what I wrote it's what came out of my the voice in my head telling me write this <laughs> you know I, and I learned that principle you know on creative writing classes uh, radio when I do my radio show I learned one of the things that we learned was to how to interview or how to have a conversation this is, what, this, this is what we're doing. We're having a conversation here. This is not a questionnaire. This is not an interrogation. This is a conversation. We're sharing, you know, ideas and points of view and so on. I learned that in school, Miami Day. I apply that to my radio show. Everything that I learned about how to perform in a music video, I learned from school. And everything, everything I do in my career, I can always go back to what I learned in school and apply that. That's a really amazing piece of advice and a great end cap to this podcast. Thank you so much for being well, willing to do so. this. Thank you. Thank you for a wonderful interview. And, uh, you know, I'm looking for you guys to accomplish great things. Thank you so Don't much. Thank you. <laughs> Don't let me down. <laughs> I will do. I will do my very best. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you once again for tuning in to the first episode of Back to Conversations. We'll be uploading a new episode every Thursday. Hopefully our audio will get better with time as we adjust to a new way of doing things. But we wanted to be transparent and put out the content that we said to put out. Again, this has been Back to Conversations and catch us again next Thursday.